You're listening to the podcast of Christ Walk Church in Fernandina Beach, Florida, where we exist to inspire people to follow Jesus every day. We hope that these messages encourage and challenge you to live for something more. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can find us online at thechristwalk.com. Thanks again for listening. Now here's today's message. Well, good morning, Christ Walk Church. Uh, For those of you who are in the room this morning, you have figured out by now that I am not there in person with you. Um, it's spring break, and so uh, my family and I were taking advantage of the few days off that the kids had from school to travel to see both sides of our family in Tennessee, and we desperately miss getting to be there with you in person and look forward to being back with you all this coming Sunday. But before we jump into today's message, I just want to extend a special thank you to show my gratitude to our staff and to all of our volunteer leaders who are leading so well and taking care of things in our absence. And again, we can't wait to be back with you in person this next Sunday. If you've got your Bibles or you've got a smart device, I want to invite you to turn with me or swipe with me to the New Testament, to the book of 1 John. This is not to be confused with the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book of the New Testament, but this is much deeper into the New Testament towards the end, and this is the first of one of three general letters that John wrote, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and we are going to be in chapter 1, and we'll land there in just a moment. In 1886, the world and our taste buds as well were forever changed when the first glass of John Pemberton's Coca-Cola was sold at Joseph's Pharmacy in Atlanta, Georgia for five cents. Fast forward from there to 1969 when Coca-Cola held the majority of the worldwide market share for beverage companies and was extending the gap between itself and the competition. As the brand embarked upon a new decade, it led the way with a new ad campaign that simply stated, Coca-Cola, it's the real thing. Coke's then brand manager, Ira C. Herbert, heralded it as a new direction that responds to research which shows that young people seek the real, the original, and the natural as an escape from phoniness. On July 8th, 1971, just two years later, Coca-Cola released a brand new television commercial featuring a group of some 200 young people representing nations and languages from all across the world singing together in unison. It's the real thing, what the world wants today. The basic idea of the ad, now referred to as the I'd like to teach the world to sing jingle, was that a bottle of Coke was something for everyone, regardless of race or color or class or creed, and that the simple act of buying a Coke could bring people together and help to heal the division of the world and instead unite its people. But this all came to a screeching halt in the mid-1980s when the Coca-Cola company made perhaps the worst business decision of all time, not just for that company, but for any company. Realizing that their closest competitor, Pepsi, was gaining traction and popularity, particularly among younger generations, 
and beginning to close the market share gap, Coke executive decided to do the unthinkable, reformulate their nearly 100-year-old formula and launch a new formula to boldly lead the soft drink revolution into the future. In the summer of 1985, with a great deal of fanfare, New Coke was released. Originally thought to be something that would take the world by storm and once again leave no doubt as to who the king of the hill among beverage companies was, it actually had the opposite effect. Rather than being received with open arms by the general public, the Coca-Cola consumer hotline jumped from 400 calls a day to over 1,500 calls a day, demanding that they bring back the original. Basements were soon stockpiled with the remaining supply of original Coca-Cola, and families began to ration that supply for fear of running out and no longer being able to taste it ever again. Protest groups were soon formed nationwide, and at one event in downtown Atlanta, protesters carried signs reading, our children will never know refreshment. We want the real thing. You know, I think Coke had it right, albeit back in 1971. The world did, in fact, want the real thing. A cheap knockoff simply would not suffice. And here we are some 50 years later, and I believe that we are in the same boat together today, only not when it comes to the soft drink industry. Rather, I believe now more than ever, the people of this world are looking for something that is real. They are looking for the real thing. They are seeking something that is tried, that is tested, and that is proven to be authentic. For those of us claiming to be Christ followers, I can't help but wonder, is that what the world finds upon examination of how we live our lives? Does our behavior align with what we claim to believe? When, when the outside world examines our churches and, and the people within it and, and the faith that they hold, do they find it to be something that is tried and tested and authentic? You know, sadly, many have fallen away from the faith in recent years, due at least in part to the fact that the church, Christians, Christ followers, appear not much different than the rest of the world around them. Rather than discovering an authentic faith, upon closer look, those examining the church have found what Paul described in 2 Timothy to be true, a people having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. We've been labeled as fake, as hypocrites, as posers. Now, granted, some of those people on the outside of the church have held the unreasonable measuring stick of perfection up against us. But most, most were simply looking for something that was real. After all, a cheap knockoff will simply not suffice. And so today the question for you and for me becomes, how can we be sure that our faith in Jesus Christ and our relationships with him are the real thing? Today we're kicking off a brand new series called We Need to Talk, where over the next few weeks we're going to be digging into the New Testament book of 1 John, which is actually not a book, but 
a letter. And this letter is unique in that there's no specific greeting or salutation, nor does the author even identify himself in the letter. But most scholars attribute this letter to John, who is one of Jesus' disciples, due largely in part to its similarity to the Gospel of John in regard to vocabulary, writing style, and theming. And while it's not explicitly made clear to whom the letter was written, a common belief is that rather than a letter that was written to a specific church or a particular people group, that it was more general in nature and was actually written to be circulated amongst the churches in the province of Asia to serve as a warning in regard to false teaching, particularly the false teaching known as Gnosticism, that was beginning to infiltrate the church. Now, Gnosticism was a false teaching that was based on the concept of dualism, which resulted in the belief that anything done within the physical body, even the most grossest of sins, has no meaning because real life exists only in the spiritual realm alone. Gnostics claim to possess a, a higher truth of elevated knowledge that was set apart for a certain few that comes from a source of extra-biblical truth found on a mystical higher plane of existence. Gnostics denied the fact that Jesus existed as God in the flesh, but rather that he only appeared to be real. He only seemed to be human, which thus destroyed the biblical claim of Jesus' humanity and subsequently his atoning sacrifice on the cross for the sin of the world. And upon writing this letter, John is now an older seasoned veteran of the faith who likely wrote this during his time in Ephesus, shortly before he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos by Emperor Domitian, and ultimately where he received the Revelation, which is the last book of the New Testament. This letter is described by many as meandering, and a number of scholars have found it hard to provide an accurate outline for the letter. To me... It reads like the words of a faithful grandfather seeking to encourage his grandchildren in the ways of the faith and point them clearly in the direction of the man who changed his life forever, the person, Jesus Christ. But despite its warm and fuzzy appearance, with John referring to those whom he is writing to as dear children, make no mistake, as you and I are going to soon find out over the coming weeks, John doesn't mince words or pull any punches. So with that said, let's jump in together to 1 John chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 4. He writes, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the father and then he was revealed to us. And we, we proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father 
and with his son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. Now, in this passage, to kick off this letter, John is writing in regard to the reality of Jesus. And as he writes, in essence, he's saying, I speak all of these things. Everything that I'm about to tell you in this letter, I speak to you from my own personal experience. John knew that the Christian faith was something more than just a set of doctrinal beliefs, more than something to merely know in our heads. Faith in Christ is something that is tangible, something that is appealing to all the senses. Our faith in Christ is something to be seen with our eyes. It's something to be heard with our ears, tasted with our tongues, touched with our hands, and walked out with our feet. In Psalm chapter 34, verse 8, the psalmist writes, Taste and see that the Lord is good. In John 20, verse 27, Jesus says to Thomas, Put your finger here. And look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound on my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. In John 20, verse 22, it says, Then Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And it is this reality that serves as both the foundation of and the reason for John's writing of this letter. That the Christian faith is something to be experienced. It's real. It's true. It is authentic. It's kind of like asking someone for a restaurant recommendation. Like maybe you've visited somewhere for the first time and perhaps you've asked a local person or maybe you've reached out to someone who's visited that area before to, to give you some ideas of maybe a good place to eat. Recently, I was traveling to a city that I haven't spent very much time in, but I know some people who live in that area. So before traveling there, I reached out to them and I said, hey, why don't you give me a few different recommendations of some restaurants that I might like to try while I'm in town? I didn't want just the typical chain restaurant. Instead, I was looking for something that was local, something unique, something that I couldn't get just anywhere. And so they told me a list of, of their favorite places and even some of the dishes that they get at some of those places. But for one of the restaurants on the list, they said, you know, I, I've never eaten at this place, but I've heard that it's good. Well, I knew right off that that was not the place that I was going to be going. I'm not interested in something that you've only heard about. I want to go to the place that you've actually experienced. I want to sit down in the dining room that you've sat down in. I, I want to taste the pasta that, that you have a stain on that white shirt from the pasta sauce. I want to indulge in the signature dessert. Sign me up for that. I don't care what you've heard about. I want to know the things that you've experienced for yourself. And this whole idea, it brings us back to the question at hand. How can we be sure that our faith in Jesus Christ and, and that our relationship with him is the real thing? Well, for John, it all pointed back to the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, if 
you're taking notes, I want to invite you to write this down. We're going to talk about three expressions of the reality of Jesus. Three expressions of the reality of Jesus. Number one, the reality of Jesus is something that is revealed. The reality of Jesus is something that is revealed. In 1 John 1 verse 2, John writes this, speaking of Jesus, this one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. See, God is not hiding from us. In fact, the opposite is true. Rather than hide himself from us, God has been actively working from the beginning of time to reveal himself to you and to me. And he's done this through three primary means. The first of which is he's revealed himself to us through his creation, through his creation. In Romans 1 verse 20, Paul writes, For ever since the world was created, People have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. In addition to his creation, God has also revealed himself to us through his word, the Bible. In Hebrews 1, chapter 1, we read, Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And the things that he spoke to them were compiled and they were written down. And we carry them in the scriptures that we have today so that we can know the things that God has communicated to his people over the years and how we are to live as a result. And not only through his creation and through his word, but God has also revealed himself to us through his son, through his son. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, so why are you asking me to show him to you? And, and in each of these three revelations of God to his people, Jesus is the fulfillment of each one. First, he serves as an agent of God's creation. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all of creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He's also... The word of God. Not only is Jesus an agent of God's creation, he is the word of God. In John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. In addition to that, he is the son of God. He's the son of God. And this was recognized first by God himself. Mark 1:11. and a voice from heaven said, you, Jesus, are my dearly loved son. And you bring me great joy. John eleven twenty seven. Jesus is recognized by the Son of God by humans. It says, yes, Lord, Mary told him, I've always believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. 
So he's the son of God, recognized by God, recognized by humans, and also he's even recognized as the son of God by demons, those that stand in direct opposition to him and his work on the earth, in the heavenly and spiritual realms, and in our hearts and lives today. Mark 3.11 says that, Whenever those possessed by evil caught sight of Jesus, the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking, you are the son of God. And so this first expression of the reality of Jesus is that it's something that is revealed to us through his creation, through God's word, and through the fact that Jesus is the son of God. Secondly, the reality of Jesus is something to be experienced. It's something to be experienced. And and I know what you might be thinking this morning. How can I experience something that is no longer here on earth in the flesh? You know, we we think that it was probably easy for the apostles, the original disciples, those that, that lived during the time that Jesus walked the earth because they had Jesus here with them in person. But the truth is, it wasn't their physical nearness to Christ that made them what they were. It was their spiritual nearness to him. In James chapter 4, verse 8, the brother of Jesus writes, that if we'll come close to God, that God will come close to us. He says, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. So you and I, we're able to have nearness with Jesus by choosing to turn our back on sin and then ensuring that our loyalty to God is not divided. In other words, we've got to go all in in our relationship with Christ. And we draw near to God through various experiences, such as corporate worship as the body of Christ, which we're all practicing here today. Those of us that have gathered in person, those of us that are joining in online this morning, we're drawing near to God through corporate worship as the body of Christ. Another way that we draw near to God is through reading or studying his word, the Bible, We can also draw near to God and he draw near to us through engaging in the experience of prayer or doing life with other believers to get out of these rows and get into circles and in people's homes and in restaurants and different places across this community and and engage in fellowship with one another and fellowship with the Lord through participating in a life group. We draw near to God and he draws near to us as we utilize the gifts and the skills and the talents, the abilities, the things that he's placed inside of us, that we use those things to serve other people. And we draw near to God by exercising generosity with our time, our talent, our treasure, and our testimony. It's it's these kinds of experiences that are, are things that we must engage in regularly. It's kind of like when when people find out that I'm a pastor, one of the things that they typically assume is that because I'm a pastor, I'm also a golfer. And the truth is, I own a set of golf clubs. I know the rules of the game. I know the basic mechanics of how to swing the different clubs and how to play the game at a basic level. But honestly, in the four years that I've been the pastor here, 
I think I've played golf maybe three times. So does that classify me as a golfer? I don't think so. See, a, a, a golfer is someone that plays the game with regularity. A golfer goes out to the driving range. A golfer works on their short game. A golfer practices the art of reading greens and, and putting. A golfer has a sock tan on both feet and a glove tan on one hand. A golfer is someone that is engaged with the experience of what it means to actually play the game of golf. I just own a set of golf clubs. One of the most significant problems that I see in the church today are Christ followers whose practice of faith resembles my golf game. They've got the Bible app on their phone. They, they know the lingo. They, they pray over their meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They might even show up to church from time to time and even put a buck or two in the offering when they're there. But at the end of the day, they're no more a Christian than I am a golfer because they aren't regularly, daily, ongoing, engaged in the experience of following after Jesus Christ. So these first two expressions of the reality of Jesus is that first, it's something that is revealed. Two, it's something that is experienced. And then finally, John tells us that the reality of Jesus is something to be shared, something to be shared. There are benefits to living out an authentic faith in Jesus Christ. And these benefits are not only for, for ourselves, but they exist to be shared freely and generously with others. Not only do these benefits serve as defining markers of a life lived out in authentic faith, but they also serve to attract those outside of the faith to accept Jesus as Savior and to begin to live out an authentic faith themselves. John has shared with us all of these things so that we might share with others. He says, I'm, I'm writing this first and foremost so, so that we may have fellowship with one another. 1 John 1 verse 3, we proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, what we have experienced so that you may have fellowship with us. He writes these things to us so that we may have and be able to share joy. 1 John 1 verse 4, we're writing these things so that you may fully share in our joy. He says, I'm writing this so that you may not sin. 1 John 2 verse 1, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. Another reason, another thing for us to share is so that we may not be deceived. In 1 John 2, 26, he says, I'm writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. And finally, the, the fifth thing to be shared is so that we can know that we are saved. So that we can know that we are saved. 1 John 5, 13 says, I've written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life so that we can be confident in who we are in Jesus Christ. But the truth is we can't share with others what we haven't experienced ourselves. See, the world isn't looking to receive something from us that, that we've only heard about. 
those outside the faith, they couldn't care any less about us proclaiming a faith that we've never truly participated in. They want something true, something tried, something that is tested, something that is real. So imagine with me this morning what our lives would look like. Imagine what this church would look like. Imagine what our community at large would begin to look like if you and I were to embrace this kind of faith. Imagine how people might be held firm in the embrace of fellowship with other believers or how the joy of the Lord would begin to overflow from our hearts and would fill up the hearts of those around us. Imagine each and every one of us walking in the power to rise above sin and the onslaught of temptation that daily comes our way. Imagine each one of us with the ability to recognize false teaching and to properly discern the differences between truth and lies. Imagine each of us having the confidence of knowing who we are in Jesus and the future that we have to look forward to as a result. You know, I don't know about you this morning, but, but as for me, I can no longer settle for less than. I don't want any part of my walk with Christ to be based on nothing more than pretense. Instead, I'm choosing to live out a faith that is real. Because the real thing is what the world wants, what the world needs, perhaps more today than at any other time in our history. And we can't share with others what we haven't experienced first for ourselves. A cheap knockoff faith is one that will never suffice. So instead, my challenge this morning is that you and I pursue the real thing. Let's pursue the real thing. For someone here today, for someone watching online, perhaps that's once and for all deciding to surrender your heart and life to Jesus Christ. If that's you here today and you've never done that and you're ready to step into a covenant relationship with Jesus, I wanna invite you to pray this very simple prayer with me. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, I admit that I'm a sinner and that I'm lost without you. I believe that Jesus died in my place, making a way for us to have a relationship. Today, I choose to follow Jesus and his way for the rest of my life. And God, I pray for all of those who have put their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. I pray that they would come to a fullness of the reality of Jesus through God's creation, through God's word, and through an authentic relationship with the person of Christ himself. Lord, I pray that they would experience the fullness of what a relationship with Christ has to offer and that they would regularly engage in practices that lead to real, authentic faith that they would share with others in the fellowship and joy of what it means to follow after Jesus, that they would harness the power of the Holy Spirit so as to live a life that is victorious over sin with the ability to discern truth from lie. 
I pray that they would take confidence in knowing that their salvation is secure and that because of Jesus, the best is yet to come. And most importantly, help us not to just live in such a way that we keep these things to ourselves, but rather give us the courage and the boldness to model a real, authentic lifestyle for others and to share these principles freely and liberally with those that are outside the faith, inviting them to experience a life-changing relationship with Jesus as well. It's in your name that we pray all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Christ Walk Church podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. To find out more information about Christ Walk Church, including our service times, how to connect with us on social media, and the ministry opportunities we have for you and your family, simply visit our website at thechristwalk.com. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget, because of Jesus, the best is yet to come.